Welcome to Inside the Vatican with America Media. Each week, veteran Vatican reporter Gerard O'Connell and I take you behind the headlines for an intergenerational conversation about the biggest stories out of the Vatican. This weekend, Pope Francis gave a speech to grassroots activists that some are already calling an important contribution to Catholic social teaching. Jerry and I will unpack what he said. Then we'll talk about the diocesan launch of the global synodal process this weekend. America reporter Doug Gerardo and I contacted every diocese in America to find out what they had planned. And we'll talk about what we learned. I'm Colleen Deli. This is Inside the Vatican. Good morning from New Orleans, Jerry. Good afternoon from a beautiful October afternoon in Rome, Colleen. Sunshine, and we're basking in the results of the elections which has given the city a new mayor, mm-hmm. but also many of many other cities and has really reinforced the stability of the government. So everybody seems quite happy at the present moment. Good, good. So we had a bit of a busy weekend covering the diocesan uh, synodal launch, but also this speech that Pope Francis gave. And, you know, you and I cover a lot of the Pope's speeches. We have to read through a whole lot of these, but this one really stood out. pedir a todos y a todos quiero pedirles en nombre de Dios a los grandes laboratorios que liberen las patentes Pope Francis made nine very bold calls for social justice. He called for sharing vaccine patents. He called for financial institutions to relieve debts. He called for arms manufacturers to stop their activity and the media to stop its unhealthy attraction to dirt and scandal. And he turned all of this into a big Twitter thread that really blew up. People were we're very happy to see the Pope speaking out like this. The Pope also, outside of those nine calls for justice, he commented on the protests about the murder of George Floyd last year. He called for a universal basic income, and he called for a shortened work week. So a whole, whole lot going on here. But Jerry, maybe we could talk first about these George Floyd protests, this this comment that he made that they were collective Samaritans. What did the Pope mean by this? Well, you know, in the encyclical Fratelli Tutti, Mm -hmm. one whole part was devoted to this Good Samaritan. Right. And what the Good Samaritan means for people today. What's its message? Mm. Do you remember what that was? You know that uh, countries can be Good Samaritans. And here the Pope is saying a movement, a protest movement, is a collective Good Samaritan. It's not just an individual, because the original story was the, the Good Samaritan individual, but the Pope has moved moved the interpretation a little further. Yeah, right. He says this movement didn't pass by on the other side of the road, like the people in the story, when it saw the injury to human dignity caused by an abuse of power. And he called called these movements, not just you know Black Lives Matter, but all of these social movements that he was talking to, collective Samaritans. He says, yes, it can be politically manipulated, it can be distorted for for other reasons, but at the heart of it, there's something deeply good, deeply in consonant with the teaching of Christ. Yeah. Now, Jerry, uh, the Pope also called for shortening the workday, which we've heard him comment on some of the other things that he spoke about in the speech before, but this call for shortening the work week was was new. And I'm curious where this came from, why, why he made this call. Pope Francis is very conscious that so many people do not have work. 
or they are living on a day-to-day gig operation in the gig economy. They are just managing to get something to do in the day that will bring them enough money to feed their families. And he's very conscious that many people don't even do that. I, I, I was struck by this, that he's, he said he'd consulted many uh, specialist economists, etc. And he realized there are some people who are doing overtime, really overworking during the week. And there are some people who are so without work that they can't even survive. And he, he feels this is a distorted economy. And secondly, he says about the shortening of the work week, he says, remember in the 19th century, people were working maybe 18 hours a day. No, right. And and re we remember that, you know, the Catholic Church was very active in in advocating for a 40-hour work week, which was much shorter. And, uh, and Pope Francis seems to be saying here, you know, maybe it's time to do that again. Yes. And at the same time, Colleen, he's not just talking. He's also encouraged so many young economists and entrepreneurs in the economy of Francesco, mm -hmm. which had a meeting last week. There are thousands of them around the world who are exploring new ways of getting the economy to, to work. And his calls here, you've titled it now, Nine Commandments for the Economy. His call is to say, look, these are the big actors in today's economy. Each of you has a responsibility to do something. Right. Yeah. Now, we won't, we won't go into all nine of the commandments, but if our listeners want to read those, and it's really, it's worth reading this talk. It's it's very good. You can find the whole, the whole speech on the Vatican website and linked in our show notes. And I'll also link to Jerry's write-up, which includes this, this list of these nine calls. But Jerry, let's talk for a minute about who the Pope was talking to in this this video message, this speech. The the term popular movements is not really a term that we hear a lot in the U.S. So maybe you could just give us a sense of who that refers to. The popular movements, we would call them the grassroots movements. They are the movements that are working to improve the water supply for the local village. They are the cartoneros, the garbage pickers that Francis worked with in Buenos Aires before he became Pope, when he was Archbishop. They are the people who, who are working to give a minimum of health and education in the shanty towns. They are people who are working to stop the mining companies destroying the land, destroying the water, polluting the atmosphere. Indigenous groups defending their own rights. We're talking about millions and millions and millions of people who are for the basic necessities of life. Right, it's a big, big umbrella. And he includes things like the protests about George Floyd in, in it. So the, the civil rights movement, he would see in that category too. So how does this compare to, to previous popes' relationships with these, these movements? Throughout the last century and more, popes have supported these popular movements. But no pope to date has come out in the way Francis has done. He has thrown the weight of the papacy behind these movements and say, you are doing God's work when you are working to defend, to protect, to enhance human dignity. And I was struck, I, I, I was in Santa Cruz in Bolivia when Francis gave his last big talk. His last big talk to the popular movements back in 2015. Yeah, and he gave a powerful speech that day. And I never forget the words he said. 
the, he told the popular movements, he had all these thousands of them in front of them. He said, the future of humanity does not lie solely in the hands of great leaders, the great powers and the elites. It is fundamentally in the hands of peoples and in their ability to organize. It is in their hands which can guide with humility and conviction this process of change. And he's calling, insistently calling, to change the world economy. And then he said what no pope has said, and he drew tremendous applause. I, I was following it. He says, I am with you. Very powerful. Francis has gone a step beyond his predecessors. He has had the Vatican organize the coming together of all these groups, much to their delight. Not all of them are Christian, but they're all, in his view, working for human dignity and inspired by the Spirit of God. That's how he interprets it. It seems like what you're saying, Jerry, is that, you know, Francis really sees the economy right now as as not working for everyone. And he sees that that's not sustainable if we want to, you know, ensure a decent way of living for for every person. And we've seen with both this speech that he gave to the popular movements and with the Economy of Francesco conference, where he's trying to raise up the voices of young economists looking at doing things differently. We've even talked about this with women economists who he thinks have a different approach. He's trying to raise up alternatives and you know, push forward in whatever way he can, uh, an idea of a different and more equitable economy. So if our listeners want to read this uh, report from Jerry on the Pope's speech, you can find that. It's called Pope Francis's Nine Commandments for a Just Economy at americamagazine.org and linked in our show notes. And we'll also link to the Pope's full speech to the social movements there. After the break, we'll bring on Doug Gerardo to talk about the U.S. Diocese's Synod plans. Hi, my name is Doug Gerardo. I'm with America Media in New York City. Um, I'm calling because I'm helping to report on a story that we're doing about how dioceses across the country are preparing for the upcoming, or I guess the Senate already started, uh, just giving some details about uh, what lacrosse is doing. Thanks so much. Bye. For our second story today, dioceses around the world kicked off their local listening phase of the global synodal process, the Synod on Synodality, on Sunday, October 17th. And we at America wanted to know what U.S. dioceses had planned. So America Media O'Hare fellow Doug Gerardo and I contacted all 196 particular churches in the U.S. That's dioceses, archdioceses, eparchies of the Eastern churches, and the personal ordinariate of the chair of St. Peter to find out their plans. So Doug, welcome to Inside the Vatican. Thanks for having me. I've never done anything like this before. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on. You helped so much with this story. So first, I guess before we get into our findings, we should talk a little bit about why we wanted to do this story. Maybe you can go first. Uh, sure. So uh, I was really eager to get involved with this story on this synod just because I think that the whole synodal process, uh, especially involving local churches, has been a really exciting 
unfolding event in the church. I'm really excited to see the Synod succeed just because I think it's much more in the spirit of Vatican II than what we've seen even in other synods. I think it's just a good way for us to move towards a more inclusive church where we all have voices. Yeah, this is a really, really big effort that we've seen, you know, to really reach out and listen to people who even are like on the margins of the church. So, Doug, I think that you made 115 calls or something and sent probably just as many emails, if not more. Sounds about right, yeah. What what is what was it like for you? Um, so it was a lot of hearing my phone ring. The Catholic Center is closed to the public at this time. We are, however, continuing to work behind the scenes. Please, Please leave your a message name, or number, and a brief message, and I'll call you back as soon as I'm able. Back with you Thank as soon you. as possible. Um, it was also a lot of me saying the same voicemail. Please stay on the line while your call is transferred to the operator. But then sometimes you would call and you would get really great waiting music. Which, which, which dioceses did we say had really good waiting music? I don't remember which one it was, but it, it was like right as soon as the answering machine came on, it was this like really joyful, ebullient music. <laughs> and then a man with a British accent like gave the dial menu. And oh, very nice. It was so unnecessary, but I appreciated it. Yeah. <laughs> So, like, almost everybody I talked to was nice, in fairness, but one of my favorites was uh, from the Archdiocese of Atlanta. Uh, I called over to her office, and she wasn't at the phone, so I left a message. But then I got a call about a half hour later, and she was just saying how she was in her kid's pickup line, but she had a few minutes. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you really did not have to call me at your kid's pickup line. (laughs) But um, And she gave a lot of great information, so... Yeah, I think my my favorite person I talked to was uh, I don't have his name here, but the the deacon who is running the Archdiocese of Chicago's listening session. Yeah, you liked him. He is. He was really sweet. He's a older retired deacon and was just so fired up about the Senate, which was so good to hear, especially after you know either leaving so much million, rejection, right? Leaving a million voicemails you never hear back from, or having people say I don't know what the Senate thing is, or stop trying to sell me things. <laughs> So, yeah, we were really curious about what dioceses in the U.S. would do to implement the synod and and whether they would take it seriously, whether they would really make an effort to listen. So just to give an overview of what we found, we learned that there are a few different steps to the process of preparing for the synod as a diocese. One of them is, and really the first one, is appointing somebody who's going to run the diocesan listening phase. And then after that, you kind of move into planning for listening sessions, planning your opening mass that a lot of dioceses did this past Sunday. So we learned that only about half of the dioceses in the U.S. 
had a diocesan coordinator appointed so far. And that's a number that we got from the USCCB. When we made our calls, we got a lower number. Yeah, we only got about 63. And in addition to that, we only heard back from about half of the dioceses we contacted. And of the dioceses we heard back from, there's a lot of variety in terms of how much they have planned and what exactly they have planned. That's right. So, you know, we heard from about 90 dioceses. And of those, only like 35 had a plan for the listening session so far. So that's like about a third. And keeping in mind that we heard from half of them, we're talking like one sixth of U.S. churches. And then one thing that we see the Vatican emphasizing a lot for this process is reaching out to the margins of the church, like we were just talking about. And we only heard from a handful of dioceses that had a plan for doing that. But speaking of reaching out beyond, uh, we had a lot of great stories of dioceses that are really on top of their stuff. Uh, For example, the Diocese of Birmingham, Alabama, is reaching out to other dioceses to provide guidance on how to conduct the synod, especially for those with fewer resources. And they have a, what is it? Was it a Facebook group? Yeah, they set up a Facebook group. So they have two young people running their running their local synodal process. And they put together a Facebook group for all these other uh, diocesan coordinators where they can all kind of come together and support each other. And that, w- that was really cool. But then there's other uh, dioceses where that is very much not the case. Yeah. So I remember, you know, one of the dioceses we called had just had a bishop installed the day before. So, of course, they did not have a plan in place. And then there was one diocese that I won't name, but I called them and I, I was rerouted through their phone tree several times. And I kept asking and asking, you know, what are your plans for this global synodal process? And I would explain it a little bit. And they had no idea what I was talking about when I mentioned the synod. Then when I called over to the Diocese of Anchorage, Alaska, um, they're having a little bit of a tougher time with it, and they didn't have anything planned as of the time I called. Yeah, that's right. And this is actually something that I talked to Richard Cole, who is the USCCB's coordinator for all of these local diocesan coordinators. They're all feeding back what they hear from these listening sessions to him. Uh, He told me that Dioceses like Anchorage that are, quote, mission dioceses, which is about 40% of the dioceses in America, they struggle with financial resources, they, they don't have very much money, they don't have very many Catholics in their areas, and usually they're very, very big dioceses geographically. And that all makes it really, really difficult to get people together for listening sessions and to even have the resources to do this kind of broad outreach. And we actually learned this was really interesting. I think neither of us knew this before, that these are also issues that are faced by many of the eparchies, which are like dioceses, but for Eastern Catholics. They're also really, really big, have not very many people and not very much money. And it was an interesting experience calling their offices. Yeah, these are dioceses essentially, but yeah, they're called eparchies um, that I wasn't even aware really existed because so much of what we talk about in U.S. Catholicism is the Latin rite. There there are other uh, people who come from the Eastern rite, as you say, uh, and we tended to find that those uh, eparchial... Sure. Uh, those offices just didn't have a lot of people. So, you know, at one point I called over and I, without meaning to, called the bishop himself. Right. Right. And, uh, and you know, these eparchies, they have something particular to, to offer in the synod that I think makes them really interesting, which is that in the Eastern churches, you have a really longstanding tradition of synods. 
they've used synods for centuries, whereas kind of after the Great Schism, we didn't we didn't really use them very much in the Roman Rite. And so they have a particular expertise that's really important to get, but at the same time, they have these challenges that make it particularly difficult for them to contribute to this process. So that's some of the challenges faced by some of those mission dioceses and eparchies, but also COVID is a big challenge for some dioceses in the U.S. I heard from someone in Rockford, Illinois, who said that they're having a really tough time getting people to come together. And so to kind of counteract that, they're having an online survey. But then you ran into some uh, some other challenges that dioceses were facing. Yeah. So when I reached out to the Diocese of Baton Rouge, Louisiana, Uh, They mentioned that they were delayed because of the recent devastating hurricanes, Mm -hmm. which wasn't surprising. But, you know, I mean, there's nothing you can do to avoid that, but it set back the process at least a few months for Mm -hmm. obvious reasons. Right. And setting back for a few months is a big cost because one of the other big, big challenges that we found was the challenge of timing. So the Vatican announced that they were going to have this process in May and that it was going to be starting in October. But the Vatican didn't send out its instructions for dioceses until September 7th. So really just about a month to get things together. But Doug, you found some dioceses that were actually really well prepared despite the timing challenges. Yeah. So uh, I called over to the Diocese of Gary, Indiana. The bishop there, Bishop McClory, had done a synod when he was the vicar general of the Archdiocese of Detroit. But then at the same time, the Diocese of Gary, before he came there, was also doing its own synod. And then in addition to that, my home diocese of the Diocese of Bridgeport, Connecticut, uh, we did a synod in 2017. So Bishop Caggiano was really uh, familiar with the process. And that's seeming to help these dioceses out a lot. Yeah. And so we've noticed that with those dioceses that got an early start that didn't necessarily wait for the Vatican's instructions, they're a lot farther along in this process now. But there were a lot that were still waiting for further instructions. And so they, those are the ones that we found are really, they, they don't have plans in place yet. And in some ways, that's really not all that surprising. I mean, this is a, a big undertaking, and it's honestly requiring a lot of agility from the dioceses to get in place a, a really, really big listening effort with not that many resources and not that much time. Uh, but even despite that, some dioceses are really doing a great job of going out of their way to reach out to those who are on the margins of the church and of society. One example was the Diocese of Marquette, Michigan, which is up in the Upper Peninsula, where they had a specific plan in place for holding listening sessions with members of Native American communities. And then also I talked to uh, I talked to a lot of people, but one of those that stood out was St. Augustine, Florida. They're doing listening sessions in seven different languages. Wow. And they're also, in those listening sessions, uh, they have facilitators, the kind of leaders of that group, uh, from different cultural backgrounds because Mm -hmm. they want people to feel as comfortable as possible. And if you have somebody from a different cultural background than, you know, the the majority of Catholics, it can help them speak more candidly Mm -hmm. about what they see as issues or things to work on in the church. So for the dioceses that are still preparing, uh, 
It seems like most of them are going to have their plans firmed up by January. We heard a lot of dioceses saying that they had kind of a two-prong process going on, where first they were going to hold kind of a planning phase just because they hadn't had a lot of prep time, where they were going to try to firm up their plans by New Year's. And then from January to April, when their report is due to the USCCB, that's when they were going to hold the listening sessions. So I think that we will see these plans firm up a lot. I think one other thing about this this story that I really liked is that we, by contacting all of them, I want to feel like we did something to advance the synod, like with that one that I gave the instructions. Yeah, I to. hope so. It's like, oh, maybe maybe we pushed it along a little bit. And also, I I mean, 196 is like a number that you can kind of wrap your head around, but just by doing so many calls, it really put into perspective the vastness not only of the country, but also the Catholic world within the country. There are just so many dioceses. At one point during this, I found out the number of Catholic dioceses in the world. Do you know this? No. Oh, you're gonna, this is gonna put our project in perspective for you. There are just over 2,000 dioceses in the world. I think it's like 2,500 maybe. No kidding. Yeah, we called like 10% of them. (laughs) Wow. So for our listeners, if you want to read our full report on all of these 196 churches and what they have planned, you can find that story at americamagazine.org and linked in the show notes. Doug, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This week's episode was produced by Maggie Van Dorn. Sound engineering by Kevin Christopher Robles. Production assistance from Kira Hanlon and Kevin Jackson. You can find in-depth and up-to-date Vatican coverage at americamagazine.org and follow us on Twitter at I-N-S-D-E Vatican Pod. That's inside without the second I, Vatican Pod. If you want to support our work here on Inside the Vatican, the best way to do that is by purchasing a digital subscription to America Magazine. You can do that at americamagazine.org slash subscribe. Thanks. For America Media with Gerard O'Connell and Doug Gerardo, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Deli. We'll see you next time. And a lot of eparchies in Parma, right? Weren't there like four? Yeah. What's up with that? I don't know. Parma, but, Ohio, right? Yeah, not not Parma, Italy. Parma, Ohio. <laughs> For the bishop's office, press one. For CSA, press two. For finance, press three. And I was just totally caught off guard. So I know that there are like different titles that you call different members of the hierarchy. And I just was trying to be as formal and polite as possible, but I forgot. So I said, thank you, your grace. (laughs) Which I'm pretty sure I just got from Game of Thrones. Yeah.